I should start by saying this. Yes. Based on the way you started with Jim being, you said, the better looking one. Or whatever. <laughs> I didn't. No, no, no. I, I did not say better. What I said was that he looks good because he needs okay. to hear that. He probably thinks that, though. Yeah. I'm looking at both of you. You're equally equally good looking, oh. but you are both perfectly suited for podcasting. <laughs> oh. <laughs> nice. That, nice. Brilliant job. Just thank you. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. you. That's nice. Yeah. I think you're but right. My YouTube yeah. series has been more successful than yeah, yours. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Making Chips. We believe that manufacturing is challenging, but if you are connected to a community of leaders, you can elevate your skills, solve your problems, and grow your business. My name is Jim Carr, and I'm joined with my co-host of almost 300. No, it'll be 300. 300 episodes yeah. in seven crazy years. Yeah, I know. Jason Zanger. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. Yeah, yeah. it's hard to believe. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving. Because we're recording this the day yeah. before. This yeah. could be coming out in January, but yes, yeah. we yeah. are recording here at Thanksgiving. So yes. a lot to be thankful for. We do certainly do. Absolutely. And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank all the loyal listeners of Making Chips. Yeah, thank the Metalworking Nation, especially those that have been with us since episode one and have listened to 300 episodes. I can't even believe that anybody would want to listen to you that much, oh, to I be can. quite honest because with you. Because I'm pretty authentic, right? <laughs> yeah. I guess. Charismatic and authentic and all, yeah. all those good things, yeah. right? I have to give Jim a pep talk every single episode to make him feel good about himself, you know? Yeah, you do a good job at that. <laughs> get, get his head blown up a little bit before we start. But anyway, seriously, I would like to thank everybody for all the years of you listening in and what's pushed us to a spot that we never thought we could yeah. achieve. And we're almost at 700,000 downloads now. And I think, what, 15,000 downloads a month is what we get. So, And it's increasing. I know it, you like the numbers, Jim, because it I makes do, you a, feel good I'm about yourself. It does. But for me, I feel good about just the feedback that we get from the manufacturing leaders out there who just tell us how much making chips has impacted their business. And that's that's what yeah, means it, the most yeah. to me. And we'd love to hear that. I mean, it gives us you know the fuel to continue doing what we're doing. So I if agree. you ever wanted to do that, please email us or just write a review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcast player that you use. Yeah. Spotify, I think. Yeah, Spotify is a big one too. Can you write a review on Spotify? I don't know. Yeah. And if you want to mention there, just tell Jim how good looking he is. He yes, likes to hear that. That does it help. Makes, as the years go on, yes. he as likes the to hear that. Get, yes. I, I mean, I, if I still get a couple of those in, yeah. I'm, I'm makes me happy. He yes. used to ask me like once every few months, you know, if he looked good, but now I have to tell him every <laughs> single time I see him, yes, Jim, you look well, good. Yeah, Jim, you're working out, you're losing a little weight. Yeah, good. So no, actually this building has kind of aged me five years, but we, we're not going to go back. We have one very special guest here. Yes, we and do. We I have was waiting one for you not so special guest anymore with us today, too. <laughs> he's, a, he's a repeat. But no, we have Jeff Taylor from Crafts back in the studio with us. And then the special guest... Sorry, Jeff, you're not special anymore because we already had you on once. The special guest is that I actually have my daughter in the studio yep, with us she's today. here right now. Yeah, it's Bring Your Daughter to Work Day today. I just deemed it that when I woke her up out of bed this morning and she's here to join us. Oh, today's not legitimately... No, I just made that up. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I thought I just, it was. A, I just made that up, and then Jeff just got done telling us, and maybe we can expound on this later. That his daughter has actually joined the business, so we want to hear yeah. about that later too. Absolutely, absolutely. But do you have any manufacturing news for us to get into? I do, as a matter of fact, and selfishly, I stole it from my production meeting today that I gave my employees because it's kind of timely and relevant to okay. us. So you may or may not have heard that 
NASA has launched this mission to crash into a near-Earth asteroid to try to change its motion in space. Is that a real or is that a movie? Because they seem to come out with that movie every five years, too. No, this is a real thing. They just launched it the other day. Okay. It's called the DART mission, a double asteroid redirection test. It's not coming for the Earth, for Earth. It's just that they want to test their hypothesis in case some asteroid does head for right. the planet. Right. Okay. It lifted off at 10.21 p.m. Pacific time on November 23rd aboard a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket from Vandenberg Space Force Base in California. And how long do you think it's going to take from that launch date before that how far away is it? Falcon rocket, I'll, I'll just 6,385,000 miles away. So I think it'll take... 6,835,083 miles. I think it'll be 12 years. No, September of 2022. Oh, okay. So right. I was we'll way off. know in September I must have, 2022... I must have skipped a zero or something. If it was successful... <laughs> That's what it was. I, I missed the zero. I'm sorry. I was a little off in my yeah. calculation in my head. Yeah. So we will know by September of next year if it's been successful and has re-diverted it. Interesting. Are the, you making any parts for that? Well, that's why I yeah. brought it up. Yeah. We do work for the company in California, and I'm sure, pretty sure our parts are on that. So nice. all those beautiful, expensive, close-tolerance parts that we made yeah, they're gonna be destroyed. are going to be just yeah. destroyed Turn into dust. in outer space. You know what would be ironic? What's that? Is if they successfully hit it, and then it redirected right into the planet. That would not be cool. It would be very ironic, wouldn't yes, it? Yes, that would be yeah. very ironic. Yeah. That'd be that very sad. Happen. Yes. Okay, so like another little fun fact before we move on. You know how there's been like a lot of, and we're totally off base on manufacturing here, so I apologize, but this is also fun to think about. And I seem to have gotten into this a lot lately. A lot of the periods of time over thousands of years where there have been like a lot of heating and cooling episodes, especially cooling episodes, have been most likely as a result of something like an asteroid hitting the Earth. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I did not know And then you have like a lot of that happens and then you have either floods happening or recessions of water and then a lot of wildlife and everything changing on the planet. Cool. Awesome. We could talk about that in a different episode if everybody's interested. Before we move on and we reintroduce... Even though it would take us way off of making chips. Yes. Before we move on and reintroduce our guest again to the show. So Jason... What are you reading? So I just downloaded two new books, actually three new books. One of them is called Progressive Partnerships. I don't know if it's going to be any good, but I'm reading it. Mm -hmm. It's just talk about how you put partnerships together in a way that's... Are you trying to get rid of me? I'm just trying to make you better. Okay, thank you. And then the other one is a fiction book called Name of the Wind, which I just heard from somebody else that it was kind of interesting. I think it's more like science fiction. Yeah. And then the other book that I read, and I'm going to try to read these by the end of the year, is a book called Hitler's Monsters, which is more of a... That does not sound like a fun book. No. it's like Why a, would you um, want to read that? Well, it's like a historical look at the bad spiritual influences that Hitler had and what motivated him to do the bad things that he did. Mm. So crazy. Yeah, it just was interesting to me. I'm sorry to put you on Good. that like bummer mood after no, mentioning no. that, but I can snap out of it really quick. I think it's important to read stuff like that because it helps us to evaluate like what's going on with people today so we don't repeat the sins of the past. I guess right. say. Well, we've got our own share of issues. Yeah, we do. So you got a lot of them. I know. No kidding. Absolutely. So it's great to have this guest back yeah. in the studio again. I was such a profound and impactful story and we took it to the apex yeah we were just talking and talking and talking this and we're going to be a good second episode and quite frankly i think this episode is going to be better 
than the first one. Yeah, we got kind of in the clinical weed side of ESOPs last episode. And I think we just want to tell the story of, you know, really hear what happened to Jeff and paint the picture for the metalworking nation on what his experience was. And I guess I'll kind of like give it away going into and then out of again of the ESOP. So at the end of the story, you know, I'll give the punchline away. The ESOP is no longer. And so we'll talk about that as well. Yeah. Did you want to reintroduce our friend Jeff? Yes, I will. I mean, peep, they know him already from Yeah, and, and what I would ago. suggest, I'm going to introduce Jeff. What I would suggest is if, if this is your first time hearing about Jeff, press the pause button, go back and listen to the prior episode. 292. 292. Thanks, yeah, Jeff. this is 296. Yeah, so we have Jeff Taylor, who is the CEO of Crafts Technology, which is now part of Hyperion Technologies. Welcome back to the show, Jeff. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I hope your listeners do get something out of this. I expect so, but I should start by saying yes. this. Based on the way you started with Jim being, you said, the better looking one. Or whatever. <laughs> I didn't, no, no, no. I, I did not say better. What I said was that he looks good because he needs okay. to hear that. He probably thinks that, though. Yeah. I'm looking at both of you. You're equally, equally good looking, oh. but you are both perfectly suited for podcasting. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Nice. That, nice. Brilliant job. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. I think you're but right. My YouTube yeah. series has been more successful than yeah, yours. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Just so you know. So Jeff, it's great. I always think that I always measure the success of a show when we close and I get an emotion and I felt really good about that show that we did, episode 292, a few yeah, ago. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Jim's more of an emotional guy. Yes, I, I am. I tend to go on the more cerebral side, and if it's thought-provoking for me, I think that that's going to be a good episode. So that's what we're going to talk about right now. So where we left it was you had come into Crafts, so. you had established this ESOP for the owners at that time, and the owners, the, the employees, employees, yeah, right? And you created this ownership culture. And we all know culture is so, so important in our businesses nowadays. It creates stickiness within the organization and it creates authenticity and in a team as one. Yeah. I mean, we started this whole cultural discussion amongst manufacturing leaders a long, six or seven yeah. years ago. And, it, and you know, it took me it, a while to jump it, on the bandwagon. Yeah. Wagon. And it's really taking steam. But like, there's a lot of companies out there that talk about having an ownership culture. And we do that. And Jim does that. But I mean, you don't truly have an ownership culture unless you actually have owners, which is primarily what amongst your culture. So that's what you had. So yeah, tell us, how did things change? Yeah, so I love it. I like the way you guys started it because ESOP, it really is just a kind of a codification of things. It's not really, anybody can have an ownership culture. Yeah. Again, ESOP is just an acronym that codifies it in law. Mm-hmm. So It's a vehicle. It's a vehicle. It's one of many. One of many, exactly. And uh, we're going to get into that as we talk about Hyperion and stuff. If I went back to the beginning and just talked about maybe the genesis of the ESOP. So why would I even want to come to an ESOP? Why would you? Why would I? Why would you? I've spent my life post high school, adult life, working life, professional life, working for somebody and making what I believe was a lot of money for people, you know, adding value to organizations, institutions but never really having a part of the equity, never a part of that built-in equity, getting any sort of multiple on the value that I put forth. What we're used to as workers, we go to work, we get a paycheck, we're an employee at will, you end the day, you end the week, you end the month, and that's it. You were paid, you're done, that's it. You have Mm -hmm. no more extended value. Yeah, it's basically dollars for hours at that point. That's all it is. It's a pay-as-you-go, you you might Mm -hmm. even say. 
Now, it's interesting because in my mindset, the genesis of the coming to an ESOP is this. So many companies on Wall Street, they give all the executives, even beyond Wall Street, even in mid-America, small America, small company America, you know, these CEOs, presidents, vice presidents, executives, they're getting a piece of the equity. Yeah, it's, it's a standard procedure when you're at that executive level. Even my wife worked for J.P. Morgan Chase, and she was given stock options on a regular basis. This is standard, right? right. I'm not saying anything that's a revelation here. Right. But, you know, I often thought, if I am the, now coming into this equation with the ESOP and employee ownership culture, I'm coming into an equation. If I'm highly incentivized with equity and I go out with my pom-poms on the shop floor and I'm rah, 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 and I'm, I'm really, let's say I'm inspirational. Let's say I'm charismatic. Let's say everybody loves me and they'll go to the ends of the earth for me. They do just that. After a couple of years, my equity is worth a real lot and they got their pay as they go. Mm-hmm. How can that be right in general? You know, Well, it's, it's right if that's your agreement with them, but it's maybe not ideal. Yeah, and I say in general. It's kind of, yeah. if, if I said philosophically, I yeah. agree. It's yeah. actually right by the agreement. And I think it's, you know, it's high time. And this started with ESOPs too, in that in the 60s and 70s, this thing was emerging is how do you start to more broadly share ownership? Not just with words, not just with, I'll give you an extra bonus to get you incentivized. Profit sharing is a wonderful vehicle as well. Right. But how do you take equity? That's where most of the value lies. If you talk economic value, that's where mm-hmm. most of it lies or lay. And so I think that was the genesis of me coming to an ESOP. I wanted to be part of something where everybody was broadly sharing and that elevation. The proverbial, so cliche, rising tide lifts all boats. I wanted to be part of that. I didn't want the tide to lift my boat and the tide goes back out and everybody else is in the mud, you know? Yeah. And I agree. Like philosophically, I do agree with you. And I shared with you before we started the last episode that I've been casually studying ESOPs for like about 10 years now because I thought to myself, what's my exit plan? What does this look like for me? As Jim knows, I get distracted very easily. So at some point it's like, okay, when I get so bored, with what I'm doing right now, how do I make sure that this legacy continues to live on, but with the team that has helped me to get to that point? And that's been an option that's been in my head. I no decisions have been made or anything like that. But I just, you know, considering all options for the future. But to what end? Right. What are you going to get out of that? If the something you do, you're going to share some equity, what happens? What's the next? Yeah, benefit? so for me, though, good question. So for me, there's like two components of it. It's not only seeing the legacy continue beyond me, because I do have a lifespan that's going to end at some point, but also... <laughs> well, so, I mean, like, so let's, says the youngest guy <laughs> sitting at the table. Well, well I do have my daughter here, He was too. looking at us when he said I know that. he was. <laughs> But he's always thinking like that. Yeah. But then there's also the notion that, okay, if I can trade 50% of equity in my company for something that doubles in value, then I go back to having 100% of what I had prior to that anyway. You know? So you're not being benevolent, you're being capitalist. No, I would say I'm being both. I would say I'm being both. I think that if you can strike a balance between benevolency and looking for your own best interest. So say like looking out for my daughter's best interest in the future too. Gosh, why wouldn't you go for that win-win? I agree. That paternalism, that notion, if somebody says, I'm just doing this because I'm benevolent, I'm paternalistic or something like that, maternalistic, that's really not a great 
way to do it, it. You really have to be part capitalist. Yeah. You have to be a benevolent capitalist of sorts. And I'm sure somebody can, there are all kinds of conscious capitalism. There's all kinds of terminology. There's a book called Conscious I hate that word capitalist anyway. It was actually, I don't know if you guys know this, but it was a term that was created by the enemies of capitalism. Capitalism, I'm using air quotes, but you know, there's better better terms that can be used than that. But, you know, yeah. And it's time we bust through the, that yeah. kind yes. of talk, yeah. yes. those paradigm shifts, so but they're not really. Why did you want to set the ESOP up at Crafts? Yeah, what was your motivation? What was the motivation? How did it change? What happened over those four years? So I was working in a professional capacity, really helping to build up what was a world-class company before I came to Crafts. And I thought to myself, there's a lot of small size, mid-size, maybe even some larger size. But for me personally, I had never been a CEO anywhere. So I didn't feel like I could go into a big company and do something profound without really stepping on my own toes. So I went into a smaller company and I thought that we could just start building on that and I could learn along the way as well. And that we could all start enjoying that appreciation of wealth, you might say. But I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. No. So you did, and you started down this path. And what did you see? What kind of changes did you see taking place? What were some of the cultural changes that took place that you said, well, this is more than just Jeff being a great leader. This is something it, else It's unto more itself. than just adding to your 401k plan or adding to the profit sharing plan. You're actually giving the employees a piece of paper that says they own X amount of this company. Yeah. Did you see any behavior changes in the okay. team? I would say this is a, a, for anybody who would embark on trying to shift from a you know sole proprietorship mentality to a cultural change like that. It's profoundly difficult in that you as a leader have to really step up and start reading the tea leaves, so to speak. Because it doesn't just happen. You don't just walk into somebody and say, hey, you're an owner. And they go, yes, I'm going to produce three times as much I ever did. It's not going to happen like that. What is reality then? The intangibles, you have to start taking the intangibles. And what are those intangibles, Jeff? It is that just that piece of paper that says you own a part of it. It's you look at it and you're like, it's worth zero. Yeah. (laughs) And so so it's an intangible. Yeah, but the next year it's got a value on it. That's it. You have to now start connecting the dots with everything from start talking more about EBITDA, future valuation, your share valuation. Okay, so there's an education portion of it Definitely. that, that needs to happen. Now we're talking. Okay. Yeah. Now and and we're I've talking. gone through some of those education with my team and teaching them what EBITDA is because we've started making a transition to being more open book and sharing the numbers with them and everything. So where does it go? So you educate them and then where does it go beyond that? They start to actually say, okay, this is impacting me personally. I need to work a little bit harder. I need to look work a little bit smarter. When did it click with the percentage? Was it year one, year two, year three? I've never heard the click. <laughs> oh, you never heard no, the click? No, it's really, it is truly the boil of the frog, that analogy of slow yeah. boiling a frog. They yeah. never know. They do it. We do it. It's organically, it's so incremental, it's almost imperceptible. Okay. Oh. But you do, you end up looking at it in hindsight, and then you can see the changes. So you don't see them in the moment, and you don't go, wow, everybody's acting like a new team. Yeah, everyone's got their shirt tucked in, and their heads held high. Did you ever track any metrics? Like, okay, we now have no problems with people showing up on time, we now don't have people resigning, were those kind of metrics... 
cap before and after Good question. We didn't track them religiously yep. like I mean, that. Okay. But I will tell you that there are things. How about even value of production per employee? Yes. I didn't track nothing, but here I was eight years later with the same number of people and twice the amount of sales. Okay. And how did that I happen? Didn't, by virtue of everything, that's the slow boil. You don't even see the... You, if you may looked at each job and said, wow, we're an ESOP. How come you didn't do that job faster? Yeah. You can't do it like uh, right at that granular level. But it does. It keeps bleeding out. It keeps happening. And all Because you're reinforcing the correct. mission of establishing the ESOP, right? You said you. It's not me. Okay. I just lead it. It's peer-to-peer. So uh, that was going to be my next That's question, Jeff. That's a big Jeff. deal. I, I was wondering if you were going to go there and I was going to kind of bait you into it. But like, was there a lot of, say, internal pressure between team members to say, hey, guys, we own this now. Or girls, we own this now. You need to step up. You can't show up five minutes late. You can't sit in the bathroom for an hour at a time right. and be unproductive. I'm going to be right? selfish for a minute and be like, hey, you know, I remember when Jason came in and showed us that new latest and greatest tooling. You know, I know it's going to be difficult to implement that, but we need to figure out how to implement that so that we can make more parts per hour and have more productivity. So one thing you figure out pretty quick as a manager in an employee-owned company is that all of a sudden you have 50 managers. <laughs> okay, does that <laughs> so really happen? That's Ooh. the converse. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. You, you, and this is what happens yeah. week to week, day to day, month to month. You're, this, it's it's all evolving. And then you have to start coaching people to say, you're not the manager to that person. Yeah. But what you do is you rely on that peer-to-peer. It's not direct. Yeah. It's an indirect. It's a team. It's a team. It's you, a team. But and it's not because I'm saying it anymore. You're not saying to people, we're a team, even though I would say you're, we're a team. Yeah. But right. that is not, you don't say we're a team and they're a team because you said we're a team. Yeah. You're a team because you're co-owners. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens. And that piece of paper now starts to illustrate how it is that you are co-owning. Now you see the result. If the share price does not go up that much this year, and you know you start suggesting how we might change things a little more, and then why, instead of you guys telling each other directly, trying to manage each other, we as a team start putting forth, well, maybe we should all do it a little differently, so whatever I, the, it is. I know I could speak for myself and Jim. I could probably speak for you on this a little bit, but by and large, it's the say the 20% of your people that really make the suggestions for improving the company, whereas the 80% more or less want to be led. Am I right, Jim? You're smiling. Yeah. yeah. And so I does that, think that's a good, does that good representation. Dyna- do you think that dynamic changes a little bit or does that still come into play? That's more true than uh, not. Okay. okay. But I mean, do some, did some people like really not care? I'm going to say Everybody was a little different at different intervals. Okay. 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 It's That's fun. Fair. It, it is. It's everybody comes to it at their own pace. You had people didn't believe it as much early on. Then some people say a retiree leaves and they're actually seeing the cash value. Yeah. It's actually turning into cash now. And they have colleagues that are still working there. Yeah. And they say, I'm getting cash out of this equation. Yeah. This is not philosophical. This is right. not futuristic. Not paper. Yeah. And you, so what happens, all these things manifest itself little bit by little bit, every little piece, there is no one thing that does it. It truly is holistic. Your whole team has to believe, your management team has to kind of, uh, you know, philosophize or, or rather impart those values. Did anybody, every get, day. did anybody get pushed out or resign because they didn't want to be a part of it? Anybody get uh, pushed out by their peers because they just, they didn't meet the criteria of being an owner? I don't 
think I recall anything specific that might have had part to do with it. You know, somebody, maybe they were going to leave this year. They Maybe they were going to retire this year. And then this comes up and maybe some people trying to, you know, uh, stay another year. But they said, this is it. I'm leaving. Yeah. But it, not that that was the singular reason. Okay. But it so, could have been a little bit of that. A question, Jeff. So you established the ESOP and we're in the early years. Did you retain other ancillary benefits? I mean, the ESOP was put into place in addition to all the other benefits, 401k, profit sharing plan. That's right health insurance, dental, vision, whatever the case may be. So it was in addition to, you didn't take away anything to give them that. That's correct. Yeah, okay. literally no change. Okay, okay. So just the addition That's of an ESOP. Yeah. Okay, so now we're into it by a year or two. And you knew as the leader, I, don't, I know you're a team, what your goal was. What was your goal implementing this ESOP for the company? All right. So I was saying when I first came in, you know, I just had this kind of long view and the long view really, if I built that out more was that if a company can show a trajectory towards growth, that's in line with the way the broader market values a company. In other words, if I own the company myself and I got 2% growth a year and I was dropping a million dollars to the bottom line, instead of a million dollars, I had a million and 20,000, I'd probably be pretty happy with a million dollars a year. Yeah. But when you're running a company, you have to be in line with comparables, minimum, right? Okay. So you have to have a trajectory of revenue growth. You have to have a trajectory of EBITDA growth or earnings growth. You have mm -hmm. to have these trajectories going there. You have to have safety has to be of the utmost. All the hallmarks of a good, best-in-class, world-class company have to be there. And they have to be in the genesis or the DNA of the company. Certainly at minimum, in my case, I've been, I was with Crafts for seven years or so before it was acquired by Hyperion Materials. But they want to look into a company, they being any company, when they're doing an acquisition, they want to look at the DNA, the breadth and depth of the team, the performance of EBITDA over so many years, the performance of your revenue growth, stickiness with the customer, voice of the customer, employee engagement. They're looking at everything. If you don't have the underpinnings of that, you will have a lower valuation. So, so that's what I just, set out to just do. Just to be clear, you, seven years the ESOP was in force. That's correct, yeah. Hey, Jason. Does money grow on trees? Money doesn't grow on trees, but jobs grow on trees. Those juicy jobs on the Zometry job board. So what is the Zometry job board? Well, Jim, you hate quoting, don't you? I keep telling you, you got to delegate that. I do, but Zometry has an alternate to that. So if I'm not feeling right about quoting, I can go to the Zometry job board. All the prices are right there. So it's pre-quoted? pick and choose whatever I want. It's pre-quoted for me. It's giving me target pricing to what I can do on my shop. All I have to do is say yes or no. Can I make those parts for that cost? And that's the it's juicy simple. job. That's the juicy that's job. That's how you get the juicy job off the job tree. Yeah, there's nothing fancy about it. And the thing is, too, if I take that job, I can get paid in 30 days. So go to zometry.com slash making chips and check it out. Bam. So for seven years, you have, quote unquote, this gradual growth, this slow boil, as you had mentioned. Mm -hmm. And over a period of seven years, if you're just increasing at 10%, I mean, you're going to drastically increase the size of your company. What happened at the end of seven years? You got approached by Hyperion or you decided it's you talk with the team and said, hey, team, I think we could sell this company and make you a lot of money. Well, and was well, that the objective? Well, that's what I was for asking. For this high like, valuation. I mean, was it that the objective to 
take? Well, I'm not even asking about valuation yet. I'm just saying, at what point did you get approached by Hyperion? Or oh. did you just say to your team, hey, I think we've got something here. It's been seven years. Okay. We've grown the company. What do you all want to do? Me as a manager, personally, our team, board of directors, everybody, nobody set out to sell the company. Okay. Oh, okay. The primary goal we had was to make the company best in class. Right. So if at some point somebody does approach us, or if we did at some point as a group felt time was right to sell, we only wanted to be ready for it. So or or you just or it just becomes a perpetuating plan that pays out its right retirees at a higher valuation than what they went in it. Why not at least do that, right? So just create a best-in-class company. It's better all the way around. So that was our goal. That somebody came to us and said, hey, (laughs) might you be interested, you know? So we were... Who started that conversation in Crafts? uh, Crafts, we never set out any conversation that said even remotely we're for sale or anything like that. So they... But who led the conversation on the Crafts side? You or your... It was me... Okay. Primarily myself and also Jeff Roberts, the vice president. Okay. But we kind of both, uh, we have a good hand in engaging customers so, so and situations. At, at that this. point, you're, since you're employee owned, it's not like, you know, most owners, if somebody approached Jim and he was taking it seriously or somebody approached me, we'd probably do it in a closed office. At that point, were you obligated to go to the team and say, hey, Hyperion approached us and we're considering it? You have to get through some stage of diligence because yes. otherwise, yeah, of course, you guys know how many gonna, people knock on the door. It's impossible. Well, but I, get a, I get an email every day. It's impossible. Well, but I mean, it's yeah. You of course you go through some diligence, but I would imagine that you would approach your team earlier in the stage than you would if it was a sole proprietorship. Yeah, you start moving through your team in some capacity, right? right. Of course, he had the board of directors obviously leads the sure. equation from then on for the most part, of mm-hmm. which I was part of the board of directors, right? Then you engage the uh, management team from there. And then in an ESOP, you're not obligated to roll it out to the employees, but they knew. So it's a very uh, subtle play on engaging everybody. Right. But you have to be careful because then everybody, company's for sale. It's not for sale. It's going to yeah. be sold. It's almost sold. Now yeah. it's not sold. Yeah. You don't want to mess people That's not a good around. culture to It have is them. a terrible one. And yeah. so I think the main thing that everybody understood is that we had a healthy measure of skepticism. I mean, I pontificated on the virtues of employee ownership for seven and a half years. You can't just abandon it. Right. So you gotta, you're thinking about it. You know, it was almost like your political platform, and then you're like, oh well, sorry, I'm changing. Sorry, <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> no, you get right. And I felt I wasn't ready, and I'm not ready to retire. I'm yeah. like, this has to be good for everybody. The retirees that just retired, the employees that are getting ready to retire and for the employees that want to stay. Sure. It has to be good for everybody. Right. So we went through a lot of diligence looking at, as the offer escalated, looking at it really holistically and really critically. Okay. And what made you finally make a decision to sell? I was going to say, what did you learn? I think, you know, right now, Hyperion Materials Technology Company is owned by KKR. Okay. So they're, I think, maybe the second largest private equity uh, firm, I believe, in the world. And the industrials group is led by a guy by the name of Peter Stavros. So we did a lot of diligence mm-hmm. trying to figure out their legacy. What is their interest? Sure. Why would you even want to buy an ESOP? Why would you want to buy crafts? Why would you do any of that? So we went through a lot, personally, all of us researching. What was that table. timeline of due diligence? I can tell you the whole thing took approximately, I think, a year or something like that. That's about normal. Yeah. That's about normal. Yeah. Okay. 
What made you finally make the decision that, okay, we're going to sign the dotted line. This is a done deal. And how successful was it? Was it a success story? Was it everything you imagined and more? Yeah. There's a lot of questions. So most importantly, if I look at it clinically just for a second, I, we, the board of directors, the trustee, everybody has a fiduciary duty to arrive at the best value for everybody. So we were uber geared towards uh, doing that. And that's how we arrived at it. I don't want to use a too cliche of a firm. It's too good of an offer to yeah. refuse. They made you not, yeah, sometimes. Yeah, was, I mean, I one yeah. of the things that I always say, like when people talk about acquisition is everybody has a price. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like for you to say that you would never sell and you don't have a price, everybody's got a price that they would sell at. And the notion of too good means that, you know what? I would never say that they underpaid and I wouldn't say that they overpaid, but they were a smart company. KKR is a smart company. They had all the right metrics in mind. And so when they offered us, they offered us a price. If you overpaid for the company, then you got a problem afterwards. Yeah, so, you, you know, do. it's not, yeah. it's not a good idea. And they're smart enough not to do yeah, that. Yeah. And if you underpay it, you kind of, we're not doing our fiduciary duties. So I believe what we arrived at, this is, you know, you got investment bankers involved and everybody's I'm chiming sure everyone's, in. Everyone's, so, everyone's looking at the numbers. Yeah. You, if we say no, there was actually even risk of actually being in trouble for saying no. Imagine, Jim, if you wanted to sell making chips and Jason didn't want to, or, Uh you know, let's just say you had more, let's say you had, it was 60, 40, you own 60% of it and you could say, yes, sell it, but you sell it on the cheap. Okay. Well, Jason would be like, you sold my share of the company on the cheap. That would not be cool. Right. Right. He would have been deprived what he would see as the perceived market. I'm pretty sure we have a right of first refusal on each any of us doing that. But you, you can yeah, see how I know it goes. You, yeah. you can't, it's, yeah. it, this is not willing. Yeah. This is a pretty serious process. So, so what value did this bring to the employees in dollars and cents? I don't know if you could say that or not. Uh, yeah, without being specific, I will tell you this. I mean, people were walking away pretty readily with six figures. Yeah. Pretty readily. Yeah. And, you know, it's life-changing. So I, I say that number in the context of there's a lot of people that were there that were 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 plus years old. And when you're being handed a check like that, it is life-changing. Yeah. It gives you, yeah, it gives you the ability to do things that you couldn't otherwise do before. That's exactly right. So there's a reason. So there's a couple things I want to talk about first. And I said this in the previous episode. Um, and I you know we talked about this in our conversations before we started recording, but you got a high valuation for the business. And I think that one of the reasons it was an extremely well-run company, you had a lot of buy-in from your employees, you had a dynamic culture, and you had a lot of patents, and you had a niche, you were selling to a niche market, and it was very lucrative. I think. Is, am I correct in all of those, Jeff? You're correct in what we became. Okay. Okay. Company's 130 years old. Okay. It was a job shop before I got there. Okay. Okay. But, I mean, and that's not to denigrate job shop. It, no, no, it's no, no, a no, no, different no. kind of valuation yes, you get. That's totally. to your point. Yes. So did we get there? Yeah, we get there, but that was by design. That's the whole point when I it said- was deliberate. I, yeah, it was deliberate. And that's what I mean. In order to have the world-class company, you have to have customer stickiness. You have to have intellectual property. You have to have modernized equipment. You have to have a great, you have to have everything. I mean, if you want to get, otherwise, and by the way, that doesn't mean you won't sell a business if you don't, but you might get three times earnings, four times earnings, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 times. Right. Your offer to you will reflect what you put in the business. People who try and go in, on the cheap in the facility and get the best out of 50-year-old equipment, 
God love them. That's great. Yeah, you're right. going to get That's wonderful. You're going to get the basic multiple EBITDA, but to get 20 That's times right. EBITDA, you got to have something different. You have to have something proprietary. You have to have an investment. Exactly. You have to have a leadership team. You have to have all the so metrics. That was unique to your circumstance. Yes. So, Jeff, just to recap, so you went into this company as a new CEO, purchasing it as an ESOP from the previous owners. You go he didn't first, purchase it as an ESOP. He implemented the well, ESOP. Yeah, the ESOP yeah. purchased the business is oh. what, I'm, what I was yes. saying. Thank and you, then, Dr. Carr. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I did call him clinical hey, early, so yeah, he is now filling him, the wrong... Sometimes he, he clinically <laughs> prescribes the wrong medicine, too. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> And then for the next seven years, you guys are growing and you get it to the point where you're able to sell the company in a large multiple to a private equity company. Okay, so now how has the company changed once again yes. as we are how many years yeah, out? Yeah, that's a big deal because I can tell you, I don't know if I personally would have had the stomach jumping plainly, directly going zero to 60 and 60 to zero mm-hmm. in terms of employee ownership. I, I just probably wouldn't have had the stomach for it. So... Hyperion and KKR, they have this employee ownership culture as well. So they did a deal. I don't quote me on all these numbers. Somebody at KKR would be best suited to tell you sure. the precise numbers. But you've heard of Ingersoll Rand, for oh, instance. Yes, yeah. you know? So they did a deal with Ingersoll Rand, took some percentage of the shares, stock appreciation rights, or however you would call it, I don't, whatever equity they had, they took some percentage of it, put it into a bucket, so to speak. And when the company was sold or when they sold some parts of the equity that they had, the employees would get that percentage. Okay. Now, don't get me wrong. ESOP, again, codifies it in law and it's, it's So they a had a different finite. way of keeping the employees engaged in an ownership, ownership standpoint. Correct. Yeah. Without that, I don't know that I, it would have been much harder leap, I think, to go in that. Okay. Again, because I, I have that kind of philosophical be- yeah. uh, belief that people should be enjoying some part the of The fruits of their labor. Yeah. So I yeah. Did, I couldn't just go... Is that the socialist to, in you? We talked about that at the last one. I was kind of joke with you, but I do have a, like a philosophical question for you now, Jeff. If you were to like wave a magic wand and you're like, okay, this is where company ownership needs to go. Do you believe that like the ESOP is the best thing for say small and medium sized businesses to operate themselves? I believe it's only one spot on a long continuum. Okay. It's a great tool. It's like it's almost like the question you ask me is asking me to take my tool bag and say, which do you like better? Your okay. Phillips head, yeah. your hammer, or you okay. know, I don't know which one. There's a time and a place for an ESOP. Yes. Because let's face it, there's been a lot of ESOPs that have been put in into plays that have failed over the years. Oh, yeah. One of them, a major airline many others. Yeah. What would be the kind of, I guess, if you were talking about pros and cons, like what would be the cons on the ESOP side that you've seen based on your experience or just maybe heard from your peers? Yeah. The reasons why not to consider it. Well, think about this. I told you the great case of Crafts Technology. Yeah. Where you were growing. Yeah. What if you're not growing? What happens? Right. Right. Now what happens? Now imagine again, I'm pontificating again on the virtues of employee ownership and the, you know, the futures, sky's the limit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this year things are really bad and we're going to have to lay off. Now, I thought I was an employee owner. Right. right. Yeah. So now happens? I'm laid off. It's yeah. A, so what happens in that situation? Well, they get laid off. In my opinion, I really believe that there is no difference between publicly run company, a privately run company and an ESOP. Okay. The managers have to manage the business. Yeah. Just they if have to you make the hard go decisions. into it, eyes wide open in an ESOP or an employee culture, whatever you're going to, you 
You look at the challenges of the day, how you're going to fund the employees when they retire. You'll read about ESOPs. They'll say, oh, they go under because the debt burden that accrues as the company's growing, you got to put off book money. But you have debt burdens regardless of ESOPs. Too. Right. And that's all I'm saying. You go into it eyes wide open. You do your plan according to the structure you have. Yeah, I guess if it's, a, you know, if you're a part of an ESOP, you're going to be motivated to say, okay, if we go into this recession, I don't want to be the the person at the bottom of the pecking order, whatever it is that might be laid off because I like what I have here. I want to be a part of this ownership and I don't want to be that person that has to exit because because the company just can't sustain the operations. That's right. Now, if you run as a manager or if you're a market, let's say you have one big customer and they abandon you. I mean, that, I'm, that happens. Right. That I happens. Mean, yeah. it does I mean, it happen. just stuff happens. Yeah. I mean, stuff happens. Look at we do a lot of business with Boeing, and to no fault of our own, yeah. Boeing, Boeing has stopped. their own. Yeah, yeah. What are you going to do? Twenty twenty yeah. was probably not a good year for Boeing, right? Exactly. Yeah. Terrible. All right. But over eight years, we were building up a very diverse portfolio of customers, and we were able to weather the pandemic with no downturn, right. zero downturn, and we're greatly depressed on our upside because Boeing was so far down. But if we were not, that's the whole point, ESOP or not. I, you know, it's like you got to run the business with a diverse right. bike. It's no matter what, no what it's, how, how it's made, no difference. made up, it's yeah. supposed to be run the same. It is. It is. It's because it's a business. Just take the acronym out of the equation exactly. and just so understand why, a liability so then, and a risk. So then why are you a cheerleader of the ESOP if you don't see okay. so many? Yeah, there had to have been a reason why you are Yeah, <laughs> right now that's going yeah, What are you doing deeper. here, Jeff? Why are, you, are we you interviewing you? Trying Jeff, to, Jeff, why are we interviewing this guy? You trying to get me know. to cry? <laughs> I don't know. Huh? Jason, trying to dig Jason on some emotion? Is, yeah, he's kind of like that. So yeah, so why? I'll answer your question with the episode if it gets a little emotional. Where's your tissues? Oh, I can get you one, Okay, That's how I gauge a place when I come in. If there are tissues on the table, then I know I'm in trouble. If there's no tissues, I'm fine. Okay. 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 (laughs) So I'm going to ask you a question. Sure. And I hate answering a question with a question, but tell me. The politician in you. That's right. (laughs) Do you know what the average or the median income in the United States is? Yearly, in the United States, income, yeah. in, of all industries. And yeah. you're asking Jason, not me. $35,000. I'm going to say uh, 32. It's a little under 50. Okay. okay. It's hard to live on that. Oh, yeah, it is. Are you Medi- talking about, oh, wait, did you say medium family median, income or individual? No, median individual income. Yeah, individual. The, okay. the, if we go broader, but here's the fun you asked me. This is the way I would answer this. The median income in the United States is less than $50,000, right? Okay. A year. So if you think about that, how can people live on that? They're not enjoying equity or other asset. They're not always in the investment. How do you even start saving in your 401k when you're trying to pay the rent? What equity does, it gets, it improves the socioeconomic condition for the average person. Mm -hmm. Because when you do an equity game, like the ownership culture, there's no capital in Right. Mm-hmm. That's that's, I, that's what you, that's what I learned about this whole conversation. 401ks are wonderful. I'll match you a dollar. You got to put in a dollar. Great. Now, I'll give you a dollar. I'll put it in my 401k and I can't pay So my we're rent. just asking for your sweat equity. That's right. Yeah. To buy into helping this become the best vehicle for your wealth appreciation possible. In my opinion, I believe that equity ownership, and especially for the United States, I believe if you did this broadly, and had tax benefits to it, 
an ESOP. Yeah, like it we doesn't have to be in an ESOP, but yep. you can actually, I believe you could elevate the GDP of the United States because it would make us more productive, even just incrementally more productive. And you would create a better life for everybody. You know, the social, improving the socioeconomic conditions. So why, aren't, why isn't everybody doing it? I've got a solution. Okay, so here... Are you jumping all over my question? No, oh. I'm just disregarding your question. Okay, so, um, well, it's a good one. It is a good one. We're so, going to come back okay, to here's, it. Okay, here's my soapbox. So you and I, we run for president and vice president of the United States. We stop their spending, and then we convince everybody to turn their companies into ESOP, and then we, at the same time, grow the GDP and pay off the debt. And then we solve a lot of problems. How does that sound? Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm not a politician. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's seriously, and this is very generic, yeah. but it should be built on a notion, a notion of growth. Okay. What do you mean by that? That means I believe yeah. that tax policy should incentivize now forward. Okay. Don't take companies and do all kinds of things. But basically, if you, and this is very generic, I'm, I'm not a policymaker either, but if you said to a company, for instance, today, if I said to Car Machine, if you take 10% of your company, you make it an employee-owned 10%, or you commit some equity, whatever you want to do, however you want to do it, then you should save 1% on your growth from there on of your taxes, your corporate tax. Save 2%, whatever the number is. I Just incentivize moving forward. Don't reinvent all the wheel that's in place. Just figure out how to start, say to Jim at Car Machine, say, you know, there is a benefit if I give 1% to my employees, I give 10%. If I get, start giving an incremental percent to my employees or committed to them, I have an incremental savings in uh, corporate tax or something like that. Right. So see, it's a future game. If you try and if somebody as a policy wonk comes in and tries to change everything, who knows where that's going to go? But it, it should be on growth. Incentivize companies, new startup companies, yes. growing companies, incentivize them. That's my generic policy thought. Got okay, it. so the question that I asked that Jason overran me on was why doesn't everybody do them? What are the holdbacks? I think 1% of America is in charge. Okay, okay. 1%. Yeah, I, that's the 1%. And I'm going to tell you, philosophically, this is a big deal for me because... KKR is a big private equity firm. And I was very personally, I'm enamored with the notion that people of means, KKR is, has a very storied history. You know, you look at the big private equity firms, Bain Capital or Blackstone, you look at all these big private equity firms, if they will start that charge, if they will start that charge, I wanted to be part of that. So you have to appeal to the 1%. I know I want to say it's going to start with Jim Carr. Don't get me wrong, and it should, and that's a part of it. But there's a big portion of America, the wealthy America, has to really, these the CEOs and the people who own large tracts of companies, large pieces of it, they have to be the ones that have to buy into this, not just us. Right. And so right. this is not me disagreeing with you because, you know. That's I, good. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that I can a, reach you from yeah, here. Yeah. Yes. But I think that there's another reason maybe from the standpoint of an entrepreneur is that I think when you own your own business, it buys you a lot of freedom. And I think that there's a lot of entrepreneurs. And I think, Jim, you would probably agree with this. You want to have that. And I think these two go hand in hand. You want to have that freedom and you want to have that control. So when you have control, you have freedom. And you get to do the things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do if you were an employee, even an employee owner. 
So that's another reason, I believe, for it not being more popular than what is. And there's a knowledge gap, too. Yeah. Okay. I'll disagree with that to this one. Which one? The knowledge? The The knowledge gap? Well, freedom. Okay. Let's talk about it. Freedom, because, you know, I'm pretty sure the way I was running Crafts Technology was no different than the way you guys run your companies. Okay. Well, no, it's like you said, it's a business, right? It's still, it still has to be run. It's becoming very clear to me how this works. Um, go, go ahead. Hyperion's run the same way you right. run it. Crafts yeah. is run. You well, know, nothing really changes because what you call freedom, really, that's an equity. That's equity language. When you own sure, equity, I understand. that's equity language. No. But I have the freedom to make decisions that I feel are in the best interest of me personally, not necessarily in my family, and not necessarily in the best interest of the company if I want to do that. For example, I can decide that I want to kind of take my foot off the throttle a little bit if I want to. Whereas when you're in a situation like you were in as like the CEO of an ESOP, you don't necessarily have that freedom because you have other people that you're reporting to. But you said to. ESOP. Now we're really well, talking. Or, or we shifted to a culture of ownership, right? So when I said commit, a pers- you could run your company identical, but you could on paper say to your employees, when this company is sold, I will give 10% of the proceeds to everybody here, okay. right? So you lost no control, zero. You have the absolute freedom. Okay. You're only saying I'm going to give 10% of whatever I, I was yield. thinking. In, I was thinking in terms of like when it's primarily ESOP or primarily, you know. And I'm glad you say that because this is a really important point because too many people are stuck in the notion that everything is, we talk employee ownership, we go right to ESOP. And that is not the case. And the world is definitely migrating away from that as the only vehicle, even though it's an absolutely wonderful vehicle. Because what you just said becomes the obstacle. You say, I can't create an ESOP, I'll lose my freedom. Mm -hmm. I never said that. I said, create a culture of ownership. Understood. Don't give up your freedom because if you do it in the shop, you do lose some measure of that. So create it, right. the, create it the way you see fit. Yeah, you can structure. That's what everybody has to think is it just you, each one of us, figure out in your realm how you can embolden Well, but we've even seen this in the midst of the great resignation. There's a lot of people that have said to themselves, I don't want to be an employee of anybody. I want to be a freelancer and I want to live in Brazil and I want to decide that I want to work 20 hours a week. And you don't have that type of decision making typically to be able to make when you work for any company except for yourself or for your own company. And that's the type of freedom that I'm referring to. And we're seeing that in droves right now. Right. But let's circle back around just a little bit where we started this. I had a commentary. I said, well, everybody's already giving presidents, vice presidents, and executive team, they're already giving them shares. Sure. Nobody else is giving up their freedom when they're giving all these public companies are giving everybody on the executive team shares. There's a real disconnect if loss or foregoing equity equals anything other than only foregoing some percentage of equity. That's all this ownership psychology does. It's just you forego personally, if you're the one giving it over, you're foregoing some portion of your future equity. Somebody like Mark Cuban, when I read about him, he started a company, it was called Broadview, I think it was called. They were a big marketing company or, or communications company. Not any ESOP, he gave all his employees some culture. If you read about Mark Cuban, look at it. Yeah, I gave him like, I don't know if he did it in stock appreciation rights. I don't know how he did mm-hmm. it, but he definitely gave all his employees all of his employees all made millions and he freely gave it. And he made 
way more than he way may more, have yeah. made. And I think that's the impetus in what you were trying to tell me weeks ago when we met for the first time. Yeah, because there's a lot of ways that you can skin, you know, take care of this. I mean, you can get phantom stock, you can get that's real correct. stock, you can do an ESOP. There's just a lot of, you know, different types of shares. I mean, there's so many ways to do this. And I believe just one last thing I would say is the data support. Are you sure this is the one last thing, Jeff? Not yes. really. <laughs> I know you better Jeff, than that by you'll now. You'll shut my mic off. You'll tell me we're still taping yeah. and we'll Jim, be over. You're going to have to hit the red button on this guy pretty soon. <laughs> I believe the data supports this. I think so whether it's ESOP, if you look at Corey Rosen at the NCEO, or you look at KKR's results with Ingasol, yeah. or if you look at Crafts Technology with an ESOP, I, you go look at anywhere, you on average employees who are in a, uh, an ownership centric, whether it's an ESOP or whatever it is, the companies have outperformed other companies. So okay. that's, I believe the data supports the da- that. I would say arguably, but yeah. everything I've read And the data is important that. to look at that. And it so is. I would be really interested in seeing that in order to make intelligent decisions around this. Well, Jeff, this has definitely been informative. You know, I appreciate... Did you learn anything? I learned a lot. I got a lot to think about. Uh-oh. I haven't... Here we go. The wheels are turning. <laughs> the wheels are turning. I haven't dipped into, you know, like thinking about ESOPs in several years, but this has definitely got my wheels turning again. And I do appreciate your knowledge and getting us to really kind of... Um, if anybody has any questions for Jeff, they can find him on LinkedIn. It's, Absolutely. Is it Jeffrey or Jeff Taylor? Jeffrey. Jeffrey Taylor. Spell Jeffrey. Everyone J-E-F-F-R-E-Y. There you go. Just look for that. He's just trying to get me to say R again. Yeah, this has definitely been an interesting conversation. I can't say that I'm ready to turn my business over to an ESOP or sell my business to an ESOP, but it's definitely something that I've thought... ownership culture. Yeah, well, you know, you can have... Ownership culture has so much variance in like... It does. I can say that I have an ownership culture. You could say you have an ownership culture, but they don't own any stock. They don't have any kind of contract. They could leave tomorrow and they wouldn't have any kind of equity in the company. So there's you know, we have to make sure we're defining terms correctly. But I think having an ESOP would certainly make a mind shift change with the team that would be positive for the company. And it's something to consider. I agree. So Boy, running a business isn't what it used to be. No, when it's my not. dad started out just making chips. I know exactly. Your dad wouldn't have given over ownership to the employees. Would he? No, well, it's, it, it's probably a little bit of was a little bit above him. But um, but what, he wouldn't and why? I don't know. I he couldn't you know, yell at them anymore and no, make them work for he free. Wasn't could yelling, he wasn't yelling, but he. <laughs> I think that we're a more sophisticated culture nowadays. You know, back then, all they wanted to do was really work hard, and that was the measure of success. The more you work, the more you yeah, earn. Yeah, dollars more, for hours. Yes, that was the mindset of the past generation. Yeah, and you're certainly going to get more of that exponential return when you start thinking less about dollars per hour and more about what is my return on investment going to look like five years from now. All he wanted to do was make ships. Because if you're not making ships, you're not making money. Bam. Bam. Thanks for listening to the Making Chips podcast. Jim and Jason knew that the metalworking nation, the community of world-class makers, needed to commit to a new way of leading to stay ahead of the competition. So, Making Chips was created to fill that void, to give you advice from other manufacturing leaders who can push you to take action. Your manufacturing challenges have a solution. And many of them are at makingchips.com. Thank you.